how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters. Did Home Alone, Rowan John uses career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Alex Winter got started on Broadway at a very early age, where he landed roles in productions of The King and I and Peter Pan, which led him to NYU Film School and eventually to Hollywood. These days, he's best known for his role in the Bill & Ted franchise, where the most recent film, Bill & Ted Face the Music, comes out in 2020. However, when Winter is not playing a role, he's often behind the camera, working on documentaries such as The Panama Papers, Zappa, and HBO's latest, Showbiz Kids. In the newest film, it's a documentary about the highs and lows of children in show business, featuring interviews and examinations of the lives and careers of the most famous former child actors in the world. In this interview, Winter discusses his experience as a showbiz kid, why he structures documentaries in a narrative fashion, how docs show subtle misconceptions and misperceptions, why he sets parameters for his work, how docs deal with the true nature of humanity and fluid storytelling, and what it was like to step back into the shoes of Bill S. Preston for the latest Bill and Ted movie. I came up as a child actor. I started acting professionally around 10 years old and was on Broadway um, in two long-running shows back-to-back -back from middle school all the way through the end of high school. And um, I'd never really seen anything that looked at the experience from the inside um, in a kind of a non-tabloid, non-salacious way. What is what is this very, at the same time, unique and universal experience like? And uh, it just uh, was something uh, that I'd always wanted to do, was tell that story, but not in an autobiographical way, uh, um, which I feel like we have seen, but in more in a, in a intimate collective way, like from multiple perspectives across time. Did you begin by scheduling interviews or did you, did you kind of have your own themes in mind? Like where did you kind of start the process? Well, I start the process 
you know, I came up um, as a writer, uh, narrative writer. So I approached my docs from a pretty narrative perspective structurally, uh, which means I spend a lot of time writing uh, outlines and, and what would kind of look like a scriptment. Um, obviously, there isn't dialogue. And um, and also, because it's documentary, it changes radically as you go. But um, I do hew pretty close to some to a structure that I've constructed. And uh, in this case, I, I kind of built out a structure, which was um, a uh, something that would be both fractured and linear from the standpoint that I knew I wanted to start at the beginning of the experience um, of of someone who enters the industry and then either makes, you know, has success in the industry or doesn't, and then chronicles that experience. And then what does the other end of that look like transitioning from young adulthood to, uh, to adulthood and then sort of looking back. But I knew from a fractured standpoint, I wanted that all to be from multiple people across time. So once I had that idea uh, mapped out, then we set about doing the research of reaching out to people and uh, uh, and securing interviews with them. What are some of the misconceptions around like being a child actor or child star? Uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misperception, um, but I think that also there tends to be a focus on on uh, on the most negative aspects. And obviously there are negative aspects and there are challenges and there's truth to, to that perception. Um, I think that some of the misconceptions are subtle. Um, and it's where documentaries are effective because they're really good at digging into nuance and, and subtlety. Um, and that was something that I wanted to convey, which is what is it like for someone um, to be to be young and in a professional industry, while at the same time absolutely being a child and wanting to experience childhood and having the developmental needs of childhood, while dealing with these these hyper stressors that are usually meant for grownups. Um, then at the same time, I was interested in looking at what is it, what is that experience is uh, to um, to their family, not just on them, but how does it impact their family? I think that's a mis misconception is people sort of think of, of it always being these, these kind of caricature stage mothers who push their children into the business. And there's a lot of kids who really, you know, very vehemently want to be on stage and really have it in their DNA or on screen um, and aren't just doing it because they've got an Instagram account and think that being famous is the way to go. Um, so I wanted to get into that as well. Well, being famous is very different from the actual craft of acting. What are some of the the problems you've maybe had with with fame versus acting? How do you kind of because it really takes it's two different types of the job, I would imagine. What's that kind of like from your perspective? There's a stress, um, and a, it can be a skill, uh, or you can develop the skill. But there's a stress to stay compartmental. Uh, which is, I think, can be quite hard on on the develop on natural development of a child, um, even if you're predisposed to being good at it. Uh, the um, you know the compartments are there's the professional person who has huge responsibilities. You're showing up, uh, you know, at your required time, having all of your lines memorized, being able to handle the public components of it, being able to handle the, re the huge rejection component of it, all of that stuff. Uh, 
then there's a the compartment of just being a kid and having the things that you that you want to do um, in terms of being a kid that don't require uh, constantly being on, pretending you're happy, pretending you're okay, uh, but just being a, a regular child. Then there's being a member of a family and all the dynamics involved in that. All those compartments, um, the, the volume gets turned up pretty high on those when you're when you're a professional child actor. Um, so that can that can put quite a strain on on a kid, uh, and they can either handle that strain well or they can fold under it. Do you see some of these examples maybe like just hitting such a peak they're less interested in acting? Like I know that uh, Mary Wilson, who hasn't, who was in Matilda and Macaulay Culkin, has kind of left after they were just so famous. I've talked to Haley Joel Osment as well. I knew it was. Just, it's just kind of a. It's it's a very different thing after you reach that level of fame. What's what's actually comes next? Yeah, I think that that transitions. All transitions are hard. Um, we are uh, not really wired to uh, to develop in a way that requires being in a professional environment, accepting of our identity as being this type of person, uh, and then hand, easily handling the transition into young adulthood, you know, teenage years, adolescence, and adulthood and on. You know, those are very fluid years without being a professional person at that age. They, they're obviously stressful years. You know, the, the cliche of a, of a troubled, uh, hot-headed teen um, is accurate. You know, I've got kids. They've all gone through it. I've watched them do it, watched them go in one, out the, one end and come out the other end. And it really requires a lot of, of uh, accommodation and acceptance and compassion when you add on to that the sort of compartments I talked about a second ago, which is this this rigid need to be happy, okay, professional, accepting of rejection, uh, the person that people think you are when your identity is completely shifting and and morphing into something else and you don't know what that is. That is extremely stressful. And again, some kids handle it well and some don't. Do you see some some advice in your film? Like I know we see um, Mark Slater and his and his mother Melanie. He, he's a child actor up and coming. Do you kind of see advice if there are other families watching that are considering this or maybe struggling with it right now? Um, kind of maybe some advice on what to do or how to best deal with everything. Well, I talk to a lot of kids uh, as a director. I've directed a lot of uh, content that with ch- children and family oriented content and. Uh, I talk to a lot of moms. I talk to a lot of kids, and you know the 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 party line I have, which I, I genuinely feel, is that um, while I don't personally have a hard judgment whether or not someone uh, enters the industry young, I, you know, you can look at Cameron Boyce, who you know very tragically passed away last year from purely medical related issues. Cameron was clearly born to be on stage and on screen. Uh, he was a hundred percent, uh, a fish in water in that environment and loved it and got great satisfaction out of it and would not have wanted it any other way. Um, 
And uh, then there are kids that are that are not like that, that are more pushed into it. And then there are all kinds of kids in the middle. So the one thing I tell parents, since you have such different children entering, is that there is a constant. And the constant is there will be uh, there will be huge impact on the child, the child's development and the family and the dynamics of the family, regardless of whether that kid is successful or not successful, happy or unhappy. Um, so they have to be both aware and prepared for that impact um, in all these areas of their lives. And that is a lifelong journey. What's kind of been your, your transition? And you're still doing some acting, but you were mainly known for acting when you were younger. You've directed television. You've done a lot of documentaries recently. What's kind of pushed you towards documentary filmmaking? Well, I like people. I think it's an important thing if you make docs. Uh, and, uh, I have great curiosity about the human condition and documentaries are very, very good at, uh, stripping away the more black and white perspectives that are often the, you know, the requirement of telling narrative dramatic stories, which I've also done quite a bit of, um, usually have a, an antagonist and a protagonist. And even if your protagonist is anti-heroic, they're still, Clearly, your protagonist, Tony Soprano, is a protagonist, you know, and, and ticks all the boxes of what that means. In documentaries, you do not have to deal with that at all. You're dealing much more with the the true nature of humanity, which is incredibly self-contradictory and paradoxical. And I love that. Um, I love those truths. It doesn't mean I don't like narrative. I do. It serves very specific purpose and, and is very satisfying. Um but I really enjoy telling stories in a space that has as much nuance as the documentary space has, where you don't have a thesis necessarily, not like you want someone to walk away with something. And it's not to say there aren't docs like that, but they don't tend to be what I like to make. Um, I like things that are kind of inherently contradictory and paradoxical, and I tend to gravitate towards telling stories that are that operate that way. Do you think there's more availability to make documentaries these days? I was just talking with um, Vina Sutt, a screenwriter, and she was saying, like, you know, maybe five or six years ago, people wouldn't watch a documentary with subtitles. But now there's a lot of content out there. Do you, do you see it as, as more options to get your movies made? Certainly. Uh, I think it goes back longer than five years. I've, I've been making docs for 10 years, and uh, certainly the the landscape of cable and the proliferation of streaming and cable uh, has been a a boon for docs and has really ushered in a golden age of documentaries. And so I would say it is easier to get them financed just by virtue of the fact that there are more buyers than there ever were. And also there is more there are more buyers and there is also a more uh, interested audience uh, that is Dealing with the fact that uh, the bottom kind of dropped out of mid-level movies 20 years ago, so this isn't that new. Tell me a little bit about just the logistics for those that are not really sure where to start. Let's say um, someone wants to get their documentary made. Do you start with a treatment? Do you send it to your agent? What are some of those just basic steps? I start yeah start with an idea obviously uh, I do a bunch of research on my own to see uh, how much of the story has been told and how the story has been told uh, before I commit to even bother trying to go further than that um, a lot of stories have been told and a lot of them 
um, have been told either in a way that I would have told them or so radically not the way I would have told them that they're also rendered useless <laughs> um, and that the idea has been kind of not soiled, but just presented in a way that will be very hard to present a counter narrative. Um, once I've settled on that, I have like I have a whole team. I have my own production company, so I have a team of people that I that I talk to um, that uh, and we all sort of huddle over what we think the pros and cons of doing this thing are. Um, I have a producer, Glenn Zipper, who I've worked with for many years, who does, you know, docs with other people, but does most of my work with me. And um, I trust his taste and his perspective. And my agent is a very big part of my team, Amanda LeBeau at CAA. Um, and Devorah DeVries, my, you know, on my team on the Trooper side, um, who has been working with me since downloaded. So, um, you know, that sort of core brain trust digs in and figures out uh, what's worth pursuing. And then I built, like I said before, I start to build, um, uh, I start to write, essentially, and I start to write out narrative possibilities. Uh, and again, it is a doc. They they will change radically. I've done documentaries where I've literally had to throw out almost the entire thing and build it from scratch halfway through production based on either something that we get that's just so juicy or some aspect of the story that I learned that just changes my perspective on it. And that's fun too. Like I like the, I like the seat of your pants aspect of, of this work. A lot of people I think probably don't respond to that who come from narrative. Uh, they probably don't like the lack of control. Um, but I really do. And I think that's why when I made, when I made Downloaded, which was my very first documentary, I had originally uh, secured the life rights for Sean Fanning, you know, who was Napster, uh, and sold it to, to Paramount, MTV Films. And I had uh, written many drafts at MTV Films to make to direct it as uh, a narrative feature, um, which we were going to do when MTV Films was basically shuttered. Um, and so that went into turnaround. And I spent several years trying to get it made as an independent feature, and they really weren't a lot of independent. It was sort of like I caught the the, the beginning of the end of, of kind of mid-level grown-up movie land. Um, there were next to none being made. And uh, so I ultimately decided to make it a doc because I had spent so much time writing the script. I'd gotten to know everybody involved intimately. I traveled all over the country and met everybody involved on both sides of that story. And uh, and I was able to sell it as a doc almost immediately. Um, uh, it was a, a, a boom time for docs. And it was, a, you know, I had everybody locked up and I was shooting that doc like, you know, after spending years banging my head against the wall trying to get it made as a narrative. I was making it as a doc like a week after I pitched it. I was shooting Sean Fanning and Sean Parker. Uh, and I just loved the experience. I really did. And I, and I was struck by how much better the documentary narrative was than my dramatic narrative because it did not have to rely on creating clear antagonists and protagonists. And that's that particular story is extremely uh, fluid. Um, that, and that was why I wanted to make it. Some people saw Sean and Sean as heroes. Uh, some of the, just as many, if not more people saw them as villains that completely destroyed the record industry. Um, having done a lot of research, I knew that neither of those perspectives were accurate. Um, in fact, they were almost completely wildly inaccurate. And so, uh, I wanted to tell a story that was much more nuanced and fluid, and the doc gave me that opportunity. So that's kind of how I build them and, and do them, and that's sort of how I've done it since. 
I've actually interviewed uh, Glenn before. I think it was for his Muhammad Ali doc. Um, how do you know when you're done? Is it, is it mainly a checklist of interviews and shots you need to get? Like if something's missing and you've done most of the things you plan to do, what's next for you? The basic process is is kind of twofold. There's the cliche answer, which I think is attributable to Goddard or Truffaut, which is a movie is done when you run out of money, basically. Um, and you just have to stop. And otherwise, a movie is never done. And there's certainly an aspect of truth to that. Uh Though I like having parameters, and I will usually set them for myself, like a schedule. And and often my films are sold in advance to a distributor or a broadcast partner, in which case there's a a, a release date in mind. Um, and that allows us to put our pencils down because we know we're aiming towards this and, and all of our attention goes into uh, going – goes into making sure that um, – uh, we have the narrative where we want it. Now, does that mean I'm sitting at a film festival going, geez, I wish I'd done X, Y, and Z? Of course I am, um, because it's a doc, and a doc is ever-living. Uh, but I like the, the – the, it's kind of like a sculpture. You, you get so much time to, to sort of carve at this thing and to, to, to have it express what you want it to express. Then you just have to stop. I spoke with Ed Solomon a couple of years ago, and I think it was right around the time they announced the, the Bill and Ted uh, Face the Music. What's kind of been your experience with that, getting back into those in that familiar role? It was it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's a very familial environment. You know, we we spent Keanu and Ed and Chris and I, uh, Chris Matheson, uh, we spent a lot of time building this script and working on getting it financed. And it was a uh, a Herculean effort, and frankly, the first two movies were Herculean efforts as well. They're very idiosyncratic movies, and and um, we always have to really uh, push hard. Um, and uh, and you know, so far, once they're done and we're happy with them, the the public seems to be really happy with them. And I hope that's the case here because we we love this movie and we work very hard on it. Uh, so. You know, we'll see. It's uh, it's it was been it's been an absolutely lovely and gratifying experience. Keanu and I really enjoy performing together. Uh, we really enjoy performing together again on this one. We've been close friends for a very long time, but it's different than being in the sandbox actually playing a character. Uh, and that was really really fun for both of us. So we'll see how the what the actual response is from the public. But we're happy with it, which you know is about the most you can do. If you were to to Give advice to yourself at a younger age, maybe before you were in some of these classic roles, or or any advice you'd like to pass on. Anything that comes to mind about either directing or acting or anything like that. It's a mixed bag. I I I love what I do. It requires a lot of perseverance and tenacity to do what I do. Um, and what anyone does in this business is not you know me. It's you know what I've seen from from uh, from being. Um, in this industry from multiple sides, from the directing side and the acting side, is that I don't really know how much luck has to do with it. Uh, people talk about luck all the time. I would say it's disingenuous. It's just really not my perspective. Um, the people who tend to do well in the industry over a long period of time are the people who, first of all, really genuinely want to be here, because a lot of people think they do, but they don't actually, um, and are willing to do the work. 
and just keep going. And uh, the people that I've seen that work hard and keep going, they have a life in the industry. And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles. And give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.